This morning we'll be looking at two different texts, one from the Old Testament and a second from the New. So turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 36, starting in verses 1 through 7. And the New Testament passage is in, sec- in 1 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter 16. Bezalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohiliab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the, from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Imagine that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll read from verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. As we prepare to hear from the word of the Lord, would you pray with me? Lord, would our hearts be open? Would our hands also be open? Lord, we realize that you are the giver of all things, and we come across nothing in life but apart from your divine providence. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and I pray that our hearts would be be softened. And so, Lord, we give... All of, the, all of ourselves to you, everything that we have and everything that you've given us, Lord, would you receive it freely from us for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, these things in your name. Amen. It's uh, good to meet again on this uh, Sunday, July the 12th, the Lord's Day. Uh, for four weeks, we have been in a, a short series on wealth and possessions. And I think already it's become clear that God has a lot to say on this topic. In fact, as I've already indicated uh, um, a few weeks ago, that there are over 2,300 references in Scripture to wealth and possessions, and around 15% of all that Jesus ever spoke that's recorded was on wealth and possessions, including 16 out of 38 of the parables he spoke. So we get the idea that clearly God is concerned about our attitude and our response and our, our view of our wealth and possessions. And as you read these passages, passages uh, throughout scripture, if you had your own concordance, you would quickly find out that it is evident that one of the greatest threats to our spiritual well-being is wealth and possessions. And yet one of the greatest indications of spiritual life and health is our attitude to wealth and possessions. It's helpful just to give a quick recap since we've been away for a week from this. Um, The overall theme is, is simply this, that everything belongs to God. You can find that all the way through scriptures, it's established over and over and over again, that this world is God's by virtue of the fact that he made it, and everything in it, then by virtue of that fact, is his. Secondly, we also wrestled with the fact that while God owns it all, what's mine is actually his. 
And here we wrestled with the question of, well, how do we get some of God's wealth? And we realized that there are some uh, wrong ways to acquire God's wealth, and those would include things like stealing or fraud or dishonest scales or being in debt way over ahead or gambling. But there are some right ways that God is ordained that we accumulate some of his wealth and possessions, and those would include things like work, a good work ethic. They would include things like receiving gifts from others or being generous. One of the things that we realize is in that generosity, God then gives back to us as we are generous to others. And then we also talked about how we simply ask. Ask God, and he will give us the things that we need. Then we talked a little bit about uh, the fact that we need to cultivate the right attitude to money and possessions. There are really two categories of people. Uh, Timothy brings this out for us in chapter 6, or Paul does in chapter 6 of Timothy, where he describes those who want to get rich, and he describes those that are rich. And there Paul points out the dangers and the benefits of both of those realities in our world. And then finally, the last message that we uh, spent some time on this, we looked at stewardship and just commented there how stewardship is a word that we need to reacquaint ourselves with, much like we did the word providence a while ago. And we had talked quickly about some of the hindrances to biblical stewardship and then some of the realities of biblical stewardship that in the end of the day, our use of God's wealth and possessions is to be directed by what he desires and not by what we desire. So those were just some of the things that we have been wrestling with uh, over the last number of weeks. And out of that, we realized that um, one of the greatest um, ways of understanding wealth and possessions is to have the frame and the understanding that we came into the world with nothing and we will go out of this world with nothing. And that should have a strong determining influence on how we think about wealth and possessions. Secondly, and this is not mine, I, I think it's uh, Randy Elkhorn that says this, um, we can't take anything with us, but we can send it ahead. And so there's a, a great amount of teaching in Scripture that we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That is what Randy Elkhorn means by sending it ahead of us. And then thirdly, one of the guiding principles that is illustrated again and again is you can't serve God and money. You can't have two gods in your life. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. So that's where we have been, and those are the things that have been framing what we've been talking about. As we come into uh, 1 Corinthians 16, which is where I want to land for uh, most of our time together, or at least uh, the, the emphasis of our time together, and we're going to get there the long way around, I want to take three weeks to look at giving. And you might say, three weeks? And I'd say, yeah, three weeks to look at giving. I need to say something before we look at giving about tithing in specific. This seems to have been the gold standard of giving still in so many churches around us. But for more than 30 years or so, I've been convinced from Scripture that this is not the New Testament standard of giving at all. Rather, there are two statements that capture the New Testament standard of giving and actually pull out a lot of what the Old Testament says about giving as well. The first one is uh, words of Jesus. Two of them are words of Jesus. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The point there is that generosity in giving 
results in blessing from God. And God repays lavishly and abundantly those who learn to be generous. And then there's another saying of Jesus, which is unique saying in this fact, that it is found in the book of Acts. And it is the only words of Jesus that we have recorded outside of the, book of the, outside of the four Gospels, not including the book of Revelation. That should say something to us, certainly in light of what John writes in John chapter 21, uh, verse 35, where he says that Jesus did so many things that if it was all written down in books, the world couldn't contain them. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we read this. In every way, Paul says, I have shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and keep in mind the words of our Lord Jesus. For he said... It is more blessed to give than to receive. Those two sayings of Jesus, I find, to be the standard of giving that is laid out for the Christian in the New Testament as we follow Jesus today. Paul, we'll talk about this verse a little bit later, a couple weeks from now in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will reap generously. So with the words of the Lord ringing in our ears from Luke and from Acts, I want to talk about tithing just for a couple moments. And I'll not do it simply to say, I, it won't do for me simply to say, I don't find tithing as a guide for giving in the New Testament and leave it at that. But I have wrestled with how best to talk about this this morning and raise this question because something needs to be said But I don't want what I say to linger in your head so you don't hear anything else I say through the rest of this sermon or for the rest of this week. It's not that I don't believe what the Bible says about tithing. Rather, it is that I believe in tithing when you are supposed to tithe and not tithing when you are not to tithe. So you might respond to me, okay, Paul, then when are you to tithe? And I would say, glad you asked me. If you lived under the Mosaic law, then you should tithe. Let me explain a little to you. And I owe much of my articulation of this to uh, Alistair Begg and to John MacArthur and to a few others who years ago I started studying this and I found them and they were such a help. But before Moses, we find a few examples of giving and sacrifice In the example of Cain and Abel as they offered sacrifices. Or Noah, after they got out of the boat, he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Or Abraham, when he first uh, left the Ur of Chaldea, he made a sacrifice. But we come across the idea of a tithe first in the life of Abraham. After returning from a spectacular battle with all the spoils of war, it says that Abraham met Melchizedek. And in response to meeting Melchizedek and in thankfulness for winning the battle, it says he gave a tenth of the spoils of the war to Melchizedek. The only other time we find the word tithing in the old te- or in the before Moses is Jacob. When Jacob was leaving Canaan to go back to where his uncle lived, he promised the God that he would give a tenth of all his possessions if God would protect and prosper him. Not really the best motive for giving, But in both cases, what we find is that the tithe was completely voluntary. And it was a one-time act, it appears, for both Abraham and Jacob. It was only during the time of Moses that tithing became the basic pattern of giving outlined for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. 
where there we learn that one was to give a tenth part of everything and anything. And behind this notion of tithing in the Old Testament was the truth that we've been making, that everything belongs to God and it's all his. And so the people of Israel were commanded by God through Moses to give 10% of what they had. But we'll find out that it was more than 10%. And when we think about the 10% they gave, or as they gave their tithe, it was really to support the theocracy or the government of Israel. So the Israelites first paid a tithe to the Levites. And then through the Levites, they Levites tithe to the priest because they didn't own any land and they didn't have any property or fields or vineyards. And so that was the way that the leadership in Israel was supported. It's very much like us paying taxes to the government today. This was an administrative tithe that God placed upon the people of Israel to support the theocracy of Israel. But that's not the end of it. When you read Deuteronomy chapter 14, you find that there is another yearly 10% tithe that is placed upon the people of Israel. And it was to be used for national feasts. And it'd be great if the church had a feast tithe that we gave an additional 10% so we could all have a big party once a year. But this is what we might call a festival tithe. And it was something that was also obligatory upon the people of Israel. And then there was a third tithe. And this tithe was an obligatory tithe again, but it was once every three years. And this was a tithe that was collected to support the needy in Israel. It was like a welfare tithe, or we might even call it a benevolent tithe. So in effect, when you add up all the obligatory tithes under the Mosaic law that you find in the Old Testament, you find three tithes which total a minimum of 23% of their income. 23% of their yearly income was to be given to support the people and the theocracy of Israel. But there was more than that even. And I think though, before we uh, think about the, the more than that, this is part of why I think when you read Malachi and you find that God was offended that they were robbing him, they were, they were taking money that was justly to be given to God to support the people of Israel. And so as you add up these ties again, you realize none of it was voluntary. Every single one of them was obligatory. It was commanded. It was part of the law. And then on top of all of those was an agricultural tithe, which was when they mowed their fields, they were to leave the corners of the fields. When they, when they harvested their grapes, if any fell on the ground, they were to leave it on the ground. And that was again for the poor and the alien in the country so that they wouldn't starve and go hungry. So if you add it all up, it comes to at least about 25% of the income of the average Israelite. And it was only after that that free will or voluntary giving kicked in amongst the people of Israel. And you find that, uh, the passage that Andrew read about the giving to the uh, tabernacle was all voluntary giving. It was as their hearts led them to give. And same as David when we read from 1 Chronicles 29 as the people gave to the building of the the temple that it was all voluntary. There was no command. There was no obligation. They gave freely out of their hearts. So a tithe was mandatory. But above that was their voluntary or their free will giving. So you say, well, what about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, you find two kinds of giving also sort of laid out for us. 
you do find a, a kind of taxation, or not a kind of, a very real taxation. That under the, the Roman administration of, of, their, of their provinces, that they had brutal ties upon the people, or taxes which the people had to pay. And in fact, you can read uh, in Romans and in Peter, how both Paul and Peter said to the people, to the Christians, to whom you pay taxes, to whom taxes are due. Christians aren't um, given a free pass on taxes. We are to pay taxes to those that God has set in authority over us. When it comes to tithing, you will not find tithing mentioned in the Old, in New Testament in relation to the church. You find it twice mentioned in regard to Pharisees and a practice that they carried over from the Old Testament, which was a legalistic, Pharisaic practice. And then you find it described in Hebrews chapter 7 in reference to the Old Testament passage regarding Abraham. There is not a single command in the New Testament to believers about the obligation of tithing. There's not a hint of any kind of percentage that was placed upon God's people in the New Testament that they should give when it came to giving. The whole weight of New Testament giving is on voluntary free will giving. When it comes to giving in the New Testament, the emphasis on grace received by God, on our gratitude responsively to God for that grace, and then generosity that flows out of that gratitude for the grace that we have received. And so over the next three weeks, I want to talk about giving with that sort of caveat. Three places in Scripture we, we find outside of the, the, the Gospels where giving is expounded to us, the attitudes and the patterns behind it. And so the first place that I want to begin, and that's where we'll land for this week, uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Where there, Paul outlines for the Christians a pattern to guide and direct our giving in response to the grace of God in giving wealth and possessions to us. And so, it's important to give a, a little bit of context. If you've got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 16, you'll find there, first of all, he begins by saying, now concerning... If you've at all studied the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul is responding to a number of questions, the, the Corinthian correspondence, they call it, questions that the people of Corinth had, had sent him. And so this is a, another question. He says, now concerning, concerning what? Well, he says, concerning the collection for the saints. See, they had written him regarding a particular need that had been raised amongst them probably months earlier. And it was a connect collection that they had been um, encouraged to contribute to for the saints who were in Jerusalem. It's helpful to understand that this is a specific need. And it is a one-time, no-obligation collection that Paul would soon swing by and pick up and then take back to Jerusalem. And the questions that the, Paul might have received were along this lines. Well, Paul, when are you coming to get the offering? And how do you want us to collect it, Paul? And how much do you think we should give, Paul? Is there a percentage? Is there an amount? Like, what are you looking for from us? And he says that the collection is for the saints, for the people of God. And it was significant how the tables had turned for the Jews in Jerusalem in particular. Initially, when the gospel was first proclaimed, it went out from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem and the Jerusalem saints were the first ones to receive the gospel. Remember, thousands of them came to the Lord. And, and, and one of the things they did, you find it, that they sold extra properties. They, they sold stuff they had. They put it in a pool and they, they, so that nobody had need. There was this incredible response, not only spiritually to the word of God, but materially to the needs of one another. They had all things in common, we read, but things had changed. One of them was persecution. Persecution had swept into the land of Israel, in particular in Jerusalem, and the people had been scattered. They had, they had been scattered, and as a result, some of them had lost their jobs. Some of them had been kicked out of their homes. Some of them had been imprisoned, and so they were greatly impoverished. And on top of that, you read in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, that there was also a famine in the land. So now the tables had been turned and where the Jerusalem Jews and those Christians could be generous to others. Now they were in significant need themselves. And Paul talks about this incredible reciprocity um, that, that is a part of giving. Part of the mo- motivation behind giving is reciprocity. In Romans chapter 15 verse 27, talking about the need of the Jews, he says, For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying that the Gentiles had received incredible spiritual wealth. That they had received the, the, the Old Testament. They had received the laws. They had received the Messiah. All of that had come to them. That spiritual wealth had flowed to them from the Jewish people. And now they were in need materially. And so Paul is saying, listen, they poured into you spiritually. Now you pour into them materially. And we find that even in operation in a church and with missionaries. And uh, often in churches, those who are in staff, they can't have two jobs. And so they pour into a a people uh, spiritually, and the people in turn respond materially. So there's a reciprocity that happens between those who speak the word of God and those who care for the people of God and the way that the people of God care for those who do that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9-11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Notice also then in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed, the church is in Galatia. Paul is establishing a pattern for the churches. This isn't just a one-off for the church in Corinth. This is, what, this is the teaching that Paul is giving to all the churches. So I think we can assume from them that this is a pattern. These are patterns that Paul is encouraging Christians to embrace as they are confronted with needs, both in the churches and amongst the Christians around the world. It's like we also have a, we might have a mini catechism on giving. So the very first thing that we realize is that giving is to be systematically thoughtful. And there we answer the question of, well, when do you give? Well, notice what Paul says there. He says, on the first day of every week. That answers the question of when we give. I think it helps that we think this through a little bit. What's the first day of the week? The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. The first day of the week is Sunday. 
It's, a, it's an amazing day because this is resurrection day. This is the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This is the day when the whole world was turned upside down. A seismic shift took place in the, in the worship habits of the people of God. They now began to meet on the first day of the week. And you can find this woven throughout the New Testament. And I suspect that what Paul is beginning to do here is he's connecting giving with worship. And the reflection that ought to take place on the first day of every week. You know there is a benefit from a systematic approach to thinking about your giving. I hope you do that. There is a danger when giving becomes kind of like a Netflix or a Spotify response. We just make a subscription and then every month our, our, our account gets debited and we never think about it unless we happen to read our, our, our MasterCard or our Visa statement. Giving is, is not to be like that. Giving is to be something that each Lord's Day, we take just a few moments and we sit back because often the Lord's Day is a day where we have a different day. We're not working on Sundays. Still not everybody works on Sundays. If, if you do, there should be a day when you sit back and rest. And it's just important sometimes to just sit back and reflect. How has God blessed you? How has God given to you more than what you need? How do you think about the needs that you have become aware of during the week? Have you got an extra bonus or a raise and now you've got more money than you thought you had? Do you actually sit down and think about, God, I didn't realize I had this much money. And then he, he equates that with a need that you have. And so there's a benefit from being thoughtful uh, to to. Think afresh at the end of a week as you come out of the end of the week and begin a new week. Father, you have been so good to me. Or Father, this has been a tough week. And to reflect afresh about your giving. So at the very least, behind this, this, this pattern of giving is the fact that giving ought not to be a random, thoughtless, when I feel like it practice. Rather, Paul is saying there should be a systematic, thoughtful approach to our giving. And it should be weekly. It doesn't mean that we have to give something every week. But it does mean that the Lord's Day is a day, a different day, when we think about spiritual realities. We think about God in ways that we don't necessarily do the other six days of the week. So Paul answers the question, when do you give? He says, on the first day of every week. It just doesn't, doesn't need to take more than five or ten minutes, but just say, God, this is what my past week has looked like. God, these are the needs that you've raised. God, these are my needs. Secondly, the next part of verse 2, he says, on the first day of the week, each one of you. This is simply a reminder that giving is to be universal. Here Paul answers the question of who. Well, who should give? Each one of you. It's, it's not something that's left for the rich or, or the, that somehow the poor get a pass on. It's, it's not something that just the adults give and the children get a pass on. It's this practice, this attitude that we develop from in our children at a very young age and that we cultivate as adults that everything that we have comes to us from God. Each one of us has an obligation to be responsible for the wealth and the possessions that God has given us, even if it's 10 cents a week or if it's $10,000 a week. This is the who of giving. If the when of giving requires thought, the who of giving requires no thought. Each one of you, nobody excluded. 
This is why, one of the reasons why I think it's really important to teach children at a young age, a very young age, about their possessions and how they are to treat them and, and how they are maybe to give them away if somebody comes over and visits and plays and, and, and somebody really wants one of your kids' toys. It's not a terrible thing to say to your child, well, have you thought of maybe giving it to them and they can take it home? How do you teach your children when you begin to give them allowance or when they get money from the, the grandparents or, or they, they get a gift from an uncle or an aunt or when they have their first job and they get their first paycheck? How do you begin to teach them about generosity? They're not off the hook. You don't start giving the first time you get a real job, so to speak. You begin to learn about giving from the moment you receive your first thing, whatever that might be. How we need to get away from thinking about amounts to thinking about the act. God doesn't need your money. I, I hope you know that. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't ask us to give because if we don't give, God's somehow caught off guard and he can't help somebody else out. God owns the world and everything in it. He doesn't need your money or my money. But what he wants is our hearts. What he wants is our trust. What he wants is our participation in the redistribution of the wealth and possessions that he's placed in our care. What he wants us to learn is the incredible joy of generosity. And so that's why Paul says in the patterns that you establish, each one of you begin to learn the joy of generosity. And then he says after that, he says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is what? To put something aside and store it up. Well, here's the, here's the question, you know, giving is intentionally directed. We, we've sort of hinted at this already. It answers the question of what? Well, what? Well, put something aside and save it. This is the practical aspect of the systematic and thoughtful approach to giving that takes place on the Lord's Day. The word set aside is the word that we get theosaurus from. It's a, a, it's a word that means a treasury of words. And so what Paul is simply saying, and it, it doesn't specify, it could be set it aside in a bank account. It could be set it aside in, a, in an envelope at home. Kathy and I use an envelope system. And every payday, we take money and we put it in those envelopes. One of those envelopes is our giving. Another of those envelopes is our helping others. And we systematically direct money and put it in there until such a time as we can come to the church or we find a need and we give that money. And so he, he, it suggests a place that we... We put aside money, and it's a weekly thing that we are supposed to do. And there's numerous spin-offs from such a practice or a pattern. Because for, for the first, and the, 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 the obvious one is, as, we're in, as we become, as we practice this, we become intentional and regular and thoughtful in our giving. It's a weekly process that we work through. Secondly, do, do not the circumstances of our weeks change? Some weeks, we might have more money. We might have got a raise, or we might have got an inheritance, or we might have got a bonus, or we might have got an unexpected jolt, and so we can give more that week. And another week, we might have had a, a car that breaks down, or, or we, we might have an appliance that bursts, or, or we might have shoes that wear out, and so we don't have as much money to give that week. But isn't it easier to give aside a specific amount, even though it's a little bit, week by week by week, than to add up 10 weeks worth of giving and say, oh, shoot, I've got to give that much money? 
there's a, there's a method to the pattern that Paul is saying. He says, listen, each week think about this. And as God blesses you, set aside that money. It protects us, does it not, from having to scramble at the end of a month and, and say, oh, I, I, I need to think about my giving. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't think the church should ever be the exclusive recipient of our giving. But I do believe it should be at the top or it should be a starting point at least. Particularly when we remember the principle of reciprocity. We give materially to those who pour into us spiritually. And if we get our spiritual food somewhere else, that's where we ought to give. But that's the principle that we find woven in scripture. I've heard it said many times over the years from people who say, well, I don't give my money to a church because it's a big church and they don't need it. Well, we have bigger expenses, bigger heating bills. Or others would say, well, you know, I'd rather give my needs to others. Let, let, let a few people support the church. I'd rather send my, my money to places that have other needs. That's fine. Do both. And this is not me saying we have any need here at the church. We don't. You, you have been so generous. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm just saying that these are the patterns that we establish in our lives. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. In another place, he says, Let the elders rule well and be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we realize as we go through this that giving is to be systematically thoughtful. That each one of us is to participate in that giving. And then there's to be this, this intentional thought to our giving. That each week, even if we don't have something, but each week we say, okay, if we do, I'm going to put this aside in a safe place. And when an opportunity comes to give it, I will give it. The final thing I think that Paul lays out as a pattern for our giving is at the end of verse 2, where he says, as, as he may prosper. This is the question of how much do I give? You might say, well, how much do I give? If there is no such thing as tithing, Paul, as you said, if, if you don't believe that tithing is a New Testament principle for the New Testament believer, then how much do you give? Well, the answer is as you may prosper. It's a beautiful answer, I think. Because we can never say, I've given enough. Or we can never feel guilty that I haven't given enough. See, this would have been the perfect place for Paul to mention tithing. If, in fact, he thought it was appropriate for the church. But as they say, I say, I can't find a single New Testament text that commands the New Testament believer to tithe. Rather, I find many texts which they give proportionately and give generously. See what Paul is saying? He's saying to each one of you, you have complete discretion as to how much you give. I'm not going to tell you how much. Let God work in your heart to determine how much you ought to give. And what's sort of the, 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 the guide to that? As you prosper. Every man this is in Deuteronomy. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. You see, the motivation for our giving comes not from obligation, but from opportunity. 
For over 30 years, as I said earlier, I've been convinced that 10% or any other percentage for that matter is never prescribed as the answer to the question of how much should I give. I know this troubles some people, particularly if that's all you've ever heard. And What I would say to you is you need to go home and study it for yourself. Don't take my words for it. But go through, get a concordance out, read the passages in the New Testament and see if what I'm saying is true or not. I have been challenged about the foolishness of such a statement. Paul, if you teach your congregation that, your money is going to dry up. You know, my experience is over the years, the exact opposite happens. It releases people to give. You see, again, I would say, well, apart from the fact that no one's been able to show me a percentage in the New Testament, I would much rather trust God to transform my heart and your heart into the likeness of his heart, where he is lavish and he pours out and he is generous and he teaches us that we can trust him no matter what, all the time, every time, in every situation. And I more than ever am realizing that the grace that I have received from my heavenly father, I can never repay material. And that my first response is to be gracious and thankful back to my Heavenly Father and then respond with, with a generosity that, that reflects my Father's generosity to me. Remember the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I have always been much more a proponent of voluntary giving than obligatory giving. I have seen what happens when we set percentages up for a people. And when giving becomes based on a percentage. For those who are rich, and that's most of us, 10% is quite easy actually. And, and once we have given that or we've given our 10%, there's this danger that we trip into pride and we, 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 we trip into self-satisfaction. We say, see, I've done my part. Or even worse, we, we have this obligation that says, well, now I've given to God what, what he wants. I get the rest of it for myself. And on the other hand, I've seen those who are in dire straits and it's been impressed upon them in a, in a hard way that they need to give 10% and they can't. And they're filled with shame and they're filled with guilt because they're barely scraping by. They can barely put food on the table. They can barely put clothes on their children's back and 10% is a crushing burden on them. And rather than giving the little that they are able to give, Accompanied by joy and thanksgiving, they feel that somehow they have disobeyed and let God down. This is why I love the principle. Give as God has blessed you, as you have prospered. There's no top limit and there's no bottom limit. Just be generous as God has been generous to you. Do you see how proportionate giving changes everything? Do you see why thinking weekly about your giving can begin to transform your approach to giving? Generous, heartfelt giving militates against percentage giving. It's not about some artificial mark that is set which we try and meet. Rather, as already said, it would seem to me that giving flows first from my experience of God's grace and his generosity in saving me. Has God spared anything? He gave his one and only son. He, he gave his dearest son. It cost him dearly. 
to draw us into a relationship with him. We reflect first on God's generosity to us, and then we reflect on our, on our understanding of the theology of wealth and possessions, that after all, it's all God's anyhow. I don't own a thing. I steward a lot, but I don't own a thing. And, and then there's this correlation between the sum of money that I set aside for God each week, or at least think about, if I haven't got anything fresh that week, and my thinking of the way God has prospered me. I love the fact that Paul doesn't give a percentage and he doesn't give a figure. And so again, then, his answer to how much should I give or his answer to their question, how much should I give, is simply, it's up to you. Give as God has blessed you. Give systematically. Give intentionally. Give proportionally. Give regularly. But give. I close with a a story from Ravi Zacharias. He recounts a, an opportunity I had to go into Chiang Mai, Thailand, to a house called Ben Sanuk. It literally, literally means funhouse. And he tells how when you enter the house, you see a group of people of varying ages involved in weaving. And here, for example, he says he's a 25-year-old. His demeanor is a bouncing walk and his contagious smile make you want to pull your chair over and watch him work. His friends call him too. Two looks up and smiles and says, I'm weaving a giant wave. I want to weave colorful patterns of waves and make the cloth as big and as wide as the ocean so that I'll have enough space to play and swim in my dreams. And as he says, that laughter fills his voice. He uses sorari. It's a Japanese technique of weaving to do his work. Twelve of his friends surround him, each doing the same thing, Zacharias notes, yet each with a different design in mind, and they dream up their designs and fulfill their yearnings in this fun-filled home. But what makes this so special? Of the 13, Zacharias notes, three have physical disabilities. Six have Down syndrome, including two. One is autistic. The other three have learning or developmental disabilities. He says, as you talk to two, you notice a bright-eyed woman standing nearby, watching his moves and listening to his descriptions of his work. Then she gently interjects her own words. This is my son. He has now sold 60 of his creations. And when he receives payment for each one of them, he hands it to me and he says, this is yours, because without you, I never would have made it. You see, even in his debilitation, he knows that neither the work of art nor his life itself would have occurred if his mother, who had conceived him, carried him, and loved him, Down syndrome and all. So now as he creates, he recognizes and he acknowledges that ultimately she is the one who made all his creations possible. And so he brings his earnings and he sets them at his feet. This is what I've been trying to help us understand afresh, that ultimately everything that we have comes to us because of God's goodness and grace and mercy to us. It's all his. Without him, we would have nothing. Without him, we would have nothing to give. And so we, too, can bring everything and graciously lay it at his feet. May the grace of God increasingly grip our hearts so that our giving increasingly reflects his generosity towards us. God has been so generous to us. May we be generous to the needs that God brings across our paths, I pray. Father, thank you for your word before us and uh, for helping us land these last few minutes in 1 Corinthians 16. I thank you for the pattern that Paul lays out for the people of God. 
It's a simple pattern, but it's a helpful pattern. It's a way for us to think freshly about our giving, to not become stagnant, to not be set up in such a way that we never have to think about our giving, but that our circumstances change weekly, and therefore our giving ought to change weekly. That as fresh needs come along our way, you provide us with the ability to meet those needs in new and exciting ways. Father, I thank you that first you have been so generous to us in making us your children. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for the gift that you have given us in him. Thank you that in Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that from his poverty we might become rich. Father, I pray that we would never, ever shy away from generosity. I pray, Father, that we would always be trusting you as your spirit prompts us to give according to our prosperity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.